Well, this morning, as with the last time I stood in this pulpit, we are going to deviate a bit from what is in your bulletins, and we are going to look at the book of Proverbs once again. And this morning, we are looking at the Proverbs teaching on speech, on our words. And we will not be in one specific place in Proverbs. We're going to move around a bit. So as we begin, I want to uh, break some news to you about all of this. And that is that all of us have been lied to. We've all been lied to. And it's in this specific area that we're going to look at today. There's a modern proverb that probably all of us know. We've all probably known it most, if not all of our lives, but it is a lie. And we know it's a lie because we've lived life a little bit longer than a few hours. But for some reason, it won't go away. It's taught to kids in the hope that they will grow thicker skin. They will have the ability to put off bullies a little bit easier And they may repeat it to themselves, they may say they believe it, but even in all of that, they know in their hearts it is not true. You may be thinking of what it is already, but if you're not, here it is. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's our proverb. Does it hold up to reality? Not at all. On average, men and women speak in the neighborhood of 16,000 words per day. Some more, some less. But on average, despite old claims with unsubstantiated evidence, men and women speak about the same amount of words, about 16,000. Now, some of you are thinking right now, I know that my wife speaks at least 150,000 words every day. And some of you ladies are thinking, uh, my husband has about 14 words a day, and he uses them all at work. Well, this is what the researchers say, and so I'm going to have to believe them. 16,000 words, that is a lot. And of those 16,000 words, we have to understand how powerful they are. If you don't believe me, think of how comfortable you would be if I played a public recording of everything you've said over the last month. I don't think any of us would volunteer for that. The book of Proverbs is, in ways, a treatise on words. I would summarize it this way. Words can give life or words can bring death. It's up to you. There's no middle ground, life or death. And so here's what that means. That means that you and I have never spoken a neutral word in our lives. Paul Tripp writes, your words have direction to them. If your words are moving in the life direction, they will be words of encouragement, hope, love, peace, unity, instruction, wisdom, and correction. But if your words are moving in a death direction, They will be words of anger, malice, slander, jealousy, gossip, division, contempt, racism, violence, judgment, and condemnation. 
So you see, our words are important. Our words are one of the most important things we can think about and understand and deal with in our Christian lives because they possess so much potential for both good and evil. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So think about our proverb again. Sticks and stones, they've got nothing on words. Words are powerful. Every single day, words give us 16,000 opportunities to thrust a sword or to bring healing. So maybe you figured this out. We're going to be a bit convicted by God's word today. But I hope that we take our cues from the Bible because the Bible itself uses words to bring death and to bring life. There is a piercing, like a sword thrust, of the word that brings death, but it brings death to sin for the Christian. And there's also from the word of God a healing balm of life. And I hope we can effectively apply that today. Now the Proverbs deal with our words close to 90 different times. Jesus also and the Apostle Paul have things to say about our words. And so does James in the most extended portion of Scripture dealing with speech. James chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. So we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of what the Bible says on this very important topic. Now it's certainly no mistake that words have the power that they have. We're created in God's image. And so we possess something of that power that is displayed in the use of our words. Now, to be sure, the power of our words is incalculably less significant than the power of God's words. However, it is there. When God speaks one word, galaxies come into existence. So we admit despite what maybe some charismatics might claim, we cannot speak things into existence. However, Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. It seems odd, doesn't it? James kind of thinks about this in his book, this little tiny flap of meat in our mouths. It has so much power. But we know it does, don't we? James meditates on this. He compares the tongue to two different things. He says, it's like the bit in the mouth of a horse and the rudder on a large ship. Now, of course, we know a horse is a large animal. It's powerful. It's much stronger than a human. Some of you are scared of horses. However, a man can control a horse with a tiny little metal bit pressed between his jaw. Left, right, speed up, slow down, it goes based on this little bit. Likewise, the rudder on a ship. Think of the ships that come through on River Street in Savannah, those humongous ships carrying all the stuff that we buy from China. And they pick up whatever they pick up from America to bring back to the rest of the world. I I look at these massive ships and I'm amazed that they even float on the water let alone that they're controlled by a little rudder on the back. 
directing it to and fro across the waters, across the world, to bring it where it needs to go. And this is the power of the tongue. None of us can say that we haven't been deeply wounded or tremendously helped and encouraged by the words of others. The whole person is controlled by the tongue. My favorite stand-up comedian is named Brian Regan. And he talks a lot about how we use our words. He says sometimes our words are halfway out of our mouths and we realize we've just released a flock of doves that we cannot get back. For example, you might ask a woman when her baby is due, when in fact she's not pregnant at all. Now listen, I don't care if a woman is having contractions on the way to the hospital, and I happen to be around for that, unless she tells me that she's pregnant, I am not asking about it. (laughs) But we've been in those situations, right? We've said things, words have come out of our mouths, and we just want to gather them back up and shove them back in. Because the tongue is so powerful. It has life and death, and we, we rarely recognize the influence of it because we're so accustomed to it. And its power not only rests in the fact that it does speak, but even more so in what it reveals when we do speak. Jesus said it is from within the heart that the mouth speaks. Now, what does the Bible mean when we talk about the heart? The Bible essentially divides us up into two parts, your outer man and your inner man. The outer is your physical self, the house that God gives for your heart while you are here on earth. You could call your body your your earthly dwelling place. Now, as for your inner man, the Bible uses many words to describe it, your mind, your spirit, your soul, your will, your emotion, These words are all kind of summarized by this catch-all phrase, your heart. It's used almost a a thousand times in Scripture. It's one of the most well-developed themes in the Bible. So when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the causal core of your personhood, what it means to be human. It's your directional system. The heart is your steering wheel. So Jesus echoes the Proverbs which teach us that when we speak... It's like putting a megaphone to our hearts, broadcasting to everyone what is inside. Have you ever said something to someone and you know it offended them, and very quickly your response is, I didn't mean to say that? It's far more biblical to say, I shouldn't have said that. Will you please forgive me? Because if it hadn't first been in your heart, it wouldn't have come out of your mouth. Or sometimes we realize we've offended someone, and then we'll say, oh, I was just joking. Proverbs 26, 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. You know, I've sat with people who are 30, 40, 50 years old, some of you, who bring up some of the most horrific things that your parents said to you when you were children. 
Maybe decades ago, these words were spoken. And here you are talking about how hurtful these words were, weeping as though they were spoken to you just yesterday. And in moments like that, we're confronted with the scary, painful reality of the long-term shelf life of ugly, hateful, abusive talk. And so it's the heart of a deceiver who will say, I didn't mean it. Or, I was only joking. These words aren't jokes. They're firebrands, arrows, and death. We can laugh when we say something. We can try to disguise it as sarcasm, but it pierces to the very heart. Sticks and stones? Big deal. Words? Lord, protect us. If I run you through with a sword and pull it out, the sword won't be there any longer, but the wound will. And if it isn't treated, it will get infected, and eventually it brings death. Death is in the power of our tongues. Cruel, harsh, unloving words go deep. They get lodged in our hearts. They're in constant replay in our minds, sometimes for years and years and years. Sinclair Ferguson writes, How easily the failure to master the tongue can destroy the effect of every grace that has taken years to build into our lives. That's powerful. In a single instant, in a single strand of harsh words, all of the building up that comes through the grace that has been piled upon someone by God can completely be destroyed. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish Presbyterian missionary in the 19th century, resolved that when a fellow Christian's name was mentioned in his company, if he could not say anything good about him, he would refrain from all speech about him. He reasoned that it was better to say nothing than to be careless with fire and to destroy a brother for whom Christ died. Now imagine if all of God's people resolved the very same thing. The results of that would be incalculable. The gossip that would never happen, the churches that would never split, the bitterness that would never set in. If just this one thing, if Christians far and wide simply resolved to speak well of one another, to not destroy their brothers and sisters with their words, we would be a far more unified people of God all across the world. But one of the greatest sins in the Christian church is the use of our tongues because it's one of the greatest sins in every relationship where there's any kind of division. And if we get really honest about this, we have to admit that when we are involved in division in the body of Christ, and we're not talking about division, about biblical things, about false teaching or someone being excommunicated or something like that. We're talking about division that comes because people are unable to resolve relationships. There's gossip, there's slander, there's bitterness. This is the reason why Christians divide most of the time. And all of this is because the people of God start living for themselves, for the satisfaction of their selfish desires, which lead to turn us to dehumanize the people in our lives. No longer are they people to me. No longer are they objects of my affection and my service. No, my loved ones and my friends 
are reduced either to vehicles to help me get what I want or are obstacles in the way of me getting what I want. And when they deliver what I want, I speak kindly to them. Not actually because I love them, because I love myself. I love being satisfied in my selfish desires. And when they get in the way of what I want, I speak unkindly to them because I love myself. And they've made the mistake of getting in the way of all that I crave. Now ask yourself this. If we sat together and listened to a recording of your words over the past month, whose kingdom would we conclude that you are seeking to serve? Would it be a kingdom set with its self-focused demands and expectancy and entitlement? Would it be quick to criticize, to judge, to slam, to condemn because people are always violating the laws of your personal kingdom? Is the greatest moral offense in your life an offense that someone makes against the laws of your own kingdom? And when that happens, do you use words to rein the person back into loyal service to your purposes in your kingdom of one? You see, this is why Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You ever given thought to that? It should, at the very least, give us pause when we speak. All of my careless words will need to be accounted for before the judge of all the earth. If you speak lies, your heart is set on deception and falsehood. If you speak gossip, your heart is set on tearing down and slander. If you speak in anger, your heart is set on selfish gain and vengeance. If you speak vulgarities, your heart is set on the lust of the flesh and its poison. And you don't have to admit it. You don't have to believe it's true. Your words reveal it. But when there's poison in your mouth, you become so used to the taste of poison that you don't even realize it's there. That means if it's in you, you cannot use your mouth without the poison coming out. And be there no mistake, poison kills. Proverbs 10, 32 says, The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. It is the only thing the wicked man knows, poison. But there's another side to all of this as well, isn't there? If you speak love and encouragement and affirmation and hope and blessing and life, your heart is set on the things above, on the kingdom outside of ourselves. So you see, we can kill with our tongues, but we can give life with our tongues as well. We can wound, but we can heal. We have a very powerful muscle in our mouths And whatever those things are that come from our mouths, whatever it is we're proclaiming for the world to hear is coming from our hearts. It's in those things that we're seeking to be satisfied, evil or good, building up or tearing down, giving life or bringing death, blessing or cursing, killing or healing. Whatever it is, it is revealing where you are seeking to be satisfied. Proverbs 18.20 tells us, From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. 
Our words get to the root. They get to the center of our deepest longings and the things within which we seek to find our greatest joy. Your words are not caused by situations and relationships that exist outside of you. Your experiences may influence your words, but they do not determine what you will say and how you will say it. Your words are shaped and caused by how your heart reacts and interacts with situations and relationships that are outside of you. So you see, we're very quickly running out of ways to shift the blame, aren't we? This is because, and and here's really the most important thing you can remember from today. Word problems are heart problems. They're not vocabulary problems. They're not technique problems. Word problems in their essential form are heart problems. Remember in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So the point of Jesus' parable here is that there's an organic consistency between the roots and the fruits. You don't plant peach pits and get apple trees. And so we cannot plant what is evil in our hearts and then yield what is good. Likewise, we cannot just change what's on the outside because the fundamental problem is not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. That's why I love that description from Proverbs 18.20. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. It's an inner satisfaction. It's ingested. My stomach isn't satisfied just by looking at food. Clearly. It's a joke. You can laugh about that. I'll take that. (laughs) There's a change that has to take place internally. I'll give you an example. I'm not much of a a car guy. I think most of you know that. And when I say that, I mean I can change a tire and my wiper blades, I can fill the gas, but after that, I'm about out. So, as a result, I spend time going to a mechanic to get repairs done. Now, imagine I have a car that breaks down and I go to the mechanic and the repairman tells me, you need a new transmission. And so I asked the ever-important question, how much? And he tells me it's $2,500. And while I'm sitting there and thinking about that, I look up on the wall and I see a list of prices and I see that a new paint job is $1,000. It seems like a good deal. It's certainly cheaper than the new transmission. So I tell the man, let's hold off on the transmission. I'm going to go with a new paint job instead. I'm going to save some money today. Well, needless to say, that's not going to last very long, is it? Because the car problem cannot be fixed by a new exterior, a fresh paint job. It may look nice on the outside, but it's still not going to run. But this is so often how we attempt to fix our world of talk, isn't it? Instead of going to the source of the problem and fixing the transmission, we decide instead to just get a new paint job. 
But what does that benefit? Well, it benefits my flesh, perhaps, at least for a time. It may look better, but in the end, it's just as bad as it always was. The problem never went away. The problem of words is underneath the hood. People are not my problem. Situations are not my problem. Circumstances are not my problem. Location is not my problem. My heart is my problem. And it's only when you and I will humbly stand before our Redeemer, willing to say, regardless of all the flawed people we live with and we live around, that you are your greatest communication problem that you will be able to head in a direction of fundamental biblical change in your world of talk. It's only when we can admit that that there will be change and transformation. Many of you are probably familiar with the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. He had 70 resolutions which he penned. He sought to be guided by in life. And among them were several revolving around this theme of his speech. And I presume he very much had in mind the idea of life and death and the power of the tongue. Here's three of those resolutions. Number 31, resolved never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule. Often, when I have said anything against anyone, to bring it to and try, try it strictly by the test of this resolution. Number 36, resolved never to speak evil of any except I have some particular good call to it. And number 70, the last of his resolutions was this, let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. I admire those resolutions of Edwards to a very high degree. You know, I have to admit, I, I am fearful when I consider, consider having to give account for all of my words because throughout my life, I've been very sarcastic. At times, I've had a very sharp tongue. I've sometimes shown a lack of self-control. I've, I've gone full steam ahead in, in statements and conversations that would bring shame and embarrassment and regret. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with joking around at times There are certainly times when sarcasm is acceptable. It's all throughout the Bible. However, I have to ask myself, do I put as high a premium on my words as God does? And as I think about that, the only reason why the bottom doesn't fall out in discouragement is because as Christians, our feet are on the rock of the sovereign free grace of God purchased by one who never spoke amiss, whose righteousness with his tongue will be counted as righteousness to my tongue. And if we didn't stand on the basis of Jesus' words, upon his righteousness, upon his perfection, all of us would be condemned forever. But thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you may be sitting here this morning thinking about your words, feeling a bit bloodied at this point. It's based upon the word of God. But therein also lies the giving, loving, life-giving words of God. The reality is that the gospel is so robust 
that we don't need to be afraid of looking at the horror and the trouble of the world of talk because Jesus has. And for the Christian, Jesus has dealt with those words on the cross because he's our Savior. Do you know what my tongue and my words reveal to me? They reveal to me the absolute need that I have for a Savior. The absolute need that I have for constant, repetitive repentance. And the absolute freedom that I have in the gospel because the very words in my mouth are a reflection of my heart and apart from Christ, they condemn me. This is where we really have to dig in to see changes in our hearts, to see changes in our words because we do not speak with the wisdom of Christ in absolute perfection. Hopefully our desire is to honor the Lord And one way we're exhorted to do that we find in Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. There is no doubt that there is much to be learned from those who wisely select their words and consider the ramifications before they speak and in today's world before they write an email or a blog post or a Twitter, a tweet, a Facebook post. You know, often we sit behind our computer screens and we feel a lot more anonymous We feel empowered because we're not sitting face-to-face with someone exchanging words. We're prone to use excessive speech in our social media far more than we are in person. It's all the same. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Now, I know we're in the South, so quoting Abraham Lincoln is ill-advised. However, he has one of my favorite quotes. He said, Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. But that's what the Proverbs are saying, isn't it? We are far more likely to get into trouble for saying too much than for not speaking enough. We should hesitate. We should think before speaking or writing. Proverbs 29.20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. At their very best, our words will be few. The less we say, the less ammunition there is for ill-wishers in our life. Words have a tendency to run a man into folly and arrogance. Now, I've been pastoring for eight years now. Seven of them, almost seven, have been right here at Ephesus Church. Some of you know that for a year before I came here, I spent at another church. And when I was there, both parties realized very quickly that they weren't a fan of my theological positions. But it was foolish for me to go there in the first place. It was foolish for them to hire me. It was a bad fit altogether. 
was 25 years old, fresh out of the army and school. You know, there's a lot, there's not, there's not a lot of things in this world that are more dangerous than a 25-year-old man with some life experience, Bible college, and a platform to say whatever he wants to say. I burned a lot of bridges in the midst of all of that. They didn't need to be burned. I disregarded some of the most important exhortations in Scripture because I wasn't quick to listen and slow to speak. In my mind, they had bad theology. They had wrong ideas, and they needed me to come and fix them. So I set off on a warpath to do that very thing. And I guarantee to this day, among some of those people, if my name is mentioned, they would think that man was full of pride, he was arrogant, and he always had something to say. He was a fool. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. But you know, I was new, I was young, I was in what I perceived to be hostile territory, so I thought I had to prove myself. And because I was quick to do so, I earned my reputation. Hasty with words, quick to praise and defend myself. So, you know, as I think about that, there's much to be learned from our Savior. In the face of mounting tension, with clamor and anger and shouting and confusion and blood, he's cruelly abused and mocked and railed against with a bloodthirsty mob. People who were calling him Lord and a week later are saying, crucify him. The Lord Jesus is silent. They're out of control. He's in complete control. You see, more often than not, wisdom stops our mouths. It causes us to think about our words, to rightly formulate our words, to use the best words if something must be said. Proverbs 15.28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The difference is between righteous speech and wicked speech. And the only way to have a righteous tongue is to have a clean heart. And the essence of a clean heart before God is a heart that is fully resigned to the fact that apart from Christ, we are unrighteous, we are unworthy of God, we are unworthy of his great gifts. In Romans 3.19, the Apostle Paul deals with this idea and presents the most basic and powerful reason that we need the gospel. He writes, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on Paul's words here. He writes this, Paul points out that when you realize what the law is truly saying to you, the result is that every mouth shall be stopped. You are rendered speechless. You are not a Christian unless you've been made speechless. How do you know whether you're a Christian or not? It's that you stop talking. The trouble with the non-Christian is that he goes on talking. How do you know whether a man is a Christian? The answer is that his mouth is shut. I like the forthrightness of the gospel. People need to have their mouths shut, stopped. You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut and you are speechless and have nothing to say. 
there's something almost indefinable about the person who has clearly been converted to Christ. Dr. Lloyd-Jones surely put his finger on the essence of it. The humbling of the proud, self-sufficient heart. The breaking of our arrogance. Our tongues are so often the most obvious index of the ungodly drive at the center of our beings. But the slaying of inner pride, the illumination of our minds and regeneration creates a new disposition, new affections. In spiritual anatomy, the heart and the tongue are directly connected to one another. And the subduing of the heart leads to the silencing of the tongue. Humility within leads to humility expressed. And only when we've been silenced are we in a position where we can then begin to speak. And when we do, by God's grace, we speak as those who've first been silenced. Then and only then can we embrace what it means to speak as those who are wise. And the words of the wise are sweet and delightful. Proverbs 16, 23, and 24 says, The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. May it be said that our words are sweet like honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the body. There's much more we could say about words from Proverbs, but I want to leave us with four quick observations. Maybe this will give us some direction as we continue to think about what the Bible says about the words of our mouths. Very quickly, no commentary on these, just four observations. First, God has a holy standard for how we are to speak words and listen to words. And on the day of judgment, we will give an account for every careless word that we ever speak. Number two, on this side of heaven, we will never fully measure up to God's holy standard regarding the use of our tongues. On their own, our words will condemn us because we have no righteousness before God apart from Christ. Proverbs 10.31 says, The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Number three, Jesus fulfilled what we failed to do. His words were perfect words and without sin. His silence was perfect silence. His rebukes were perfect rebukes. His words of tenderness and compassion were perfect words of tenderness and compassion. And so, because Christ's tongue was and is the choicest silver, by nature of our union with him, we too are able to walk in obedience and to count on his righteous standing before the Father to be guaranteed as our own. And by his punishment bearing substitutionary death, his words stand in the place of our words. And fourthly, our day-by-day failure to use our tongues as we ought for God's glory, for the good of others, comes from a functional rejection of Christ himself, the word. It's only when we look to Jesus, rejoicing in him, rejoicing in his provision, that we're freed to walk and talk in his ways. I want to close with the prayer of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. 
Moses stood before the Israelites. He spoke to them these words. Listen to their significance. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Are our words like that? I pray that our great and glorious God would graciously use these imperfect words that I've spoken today to equip us, to encourage us to walk in a path of using life-giving words to honor his name, to edify his church, and to call the lost to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Give ear, O God, to our words, and may they be a sweet delight to your ear. That we would speak words of life, words of truth, the words of Christ. Father, as your people, we rejoice in the reality that as we speak, we speak as those whose hearts have been transformed. And therefore, we have within us the power to speak words of life and to remove from all of our speech words of death. We recognize and fully admit, Lord, that we have not and we will not do this perfectly. And yet you have made us able to walk in obedience. And so I pray, Father, that your word today has pierced us in this vital place where we must see our words coming into conformity with your word and being reminded that that only happens when our hearts are humbled before you and that we are silent, that we might hear your word speak. Father, continue to sanctify us in these ways, that we would be a more humble, gracious, life-giving people in the words we speak to one another and to others. Give life to us through the words of our mouth. We ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.